So today I want to talk to you about your story. We've been talking for the last uh, few weeks on this topic of what story are you telling. Specifically, I want to talk to you today about God is not done yet. I want to talk about an important day today, important date in American history, and that is July 17, 1955. July 17, 1955 was actually a very important day in American history because on that day, a lot of the culture from America really was decided. On July 17, 1955, Disneyland in Anaheim, California opened. After decades of planning, Walt Disney finally opened Walt Disney, or Disneyland to 15,000 visitors. Not only were there 15,000 visitors there that day, but 70 million Americans watched the opening of Disneyland on TV. That was about 45% of the American population watched the grand opening day of Disneyland on TV. People were amazed to watch what Walt Disney did. Walt took 165 acres of orange grove and he turned it into one of the premier theme parks in the entire world. And America and the rest of the world was fascinated. They wanted to watch what Walt did. They wanted to see how did he transform this 165 acres into a world-class theme park. And what do you think the media's response was? How do you think the media reacted to what Walt Disney did? The media thought it was a disaster. They told Walt Disney that he had made his biggest mistake. In fact, the media criticized him and said nobody would come to the park. They said it was a complete disaster. They told Walt Disney that he was ruined. They said, you're finished. They told Walt Disney that he would never recover from his blunder of creating Disneyland in Anaheim, California. That was 70 years ago. And on an annual basis, about 20 million people go to Disneyland each and every day. See, the critics were wrong. But why were the critics so against Disneyland? What was their big problem that they had with Disneyland? Well, I'll tell you what, there were a lot of problems with Disneyland on its opening day. The first problem was 30,000 people came to the opening day. Only 15,000 people were invited. The opening day was invite only, and they invited 15,000 people, and 30,000 showed up. Do you know what that meant? That meant 15,000 people came to the park illegally. Either people printed illegal tickets, or they jumped over the fence. In the back of Disneyland, one of the construction workers, he put up a, he put up a ladder so people could crawl over the fence and get in the park, and he charged them each $5 to do that. Now, the going rate to get into Disneyland was going to be $1 a day, and he charged them $5, and that park filled up with over 30,000 people. See, that's not the only problem. When twice as many people came to opening day, you know what happened? They ran out of food. They ran out of drinks, and people were upset. They had another problem. There was no drinking fountains. See, two months prior to the opening of Disneyland, there was a plumber's strike in Southern California. So Walt Disney had a choice to make. Either you have toilets or you have drinking fountains. Walt went with toilets, which was a good idea unless you're really, really thirsty. 
So that was just the beginning of the problems. The problems continued on. It was 100 degrees that day. People were hot. They were uncomfortable. There was nothing to drink, and the asphalt on the ground was new. And people would walk on it, and their shoes would kind of sink into the asphalt because it didn't have a time to harden yet. That wasn't the only problem. The landscaping wasn't done yet. On the water rides, the boat would be in the middle of the canal. On the side, it was just loaded with weeds. So what was their solution? They took a bunch of signs and put Latin words on them and put the sign in the middle of the weeds to try to make people think that was intentional, that what they had planted. It continues to go on. The Dumbo ride broke on the first day. They had a gas leak in Frontierland that people couldn't go into Frontier for all afternoon. Autopia, that's the, that's the ride. You know those little miniature cars that kids like to drive at theme parks? They literally had, they literally had carjacking going on that day. The lines were so long that parents were getting out of the line, jumping over the fence, going to the cars, pulling kids out of the car, and putting their own kids in the car and letting them drive around. It was madness. It was crazy. And the list goes on and on of disastrous things that happened that day. And the media didn't like it. That's why they said to Walt Disney, you're over, you're done. You will never rebound from this. And what was Walt Disney's response to the media? One of the most iconic speeches ever delivered was Walt's address to the media. Walt looked straight at the media with full confidence and he said this. He said, Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as there is imagination left in the world. That was Walt Disney's response. We're not done yet. And seven weeks later, they had their one millionth visitor come to that park. See, the critics were wrong. People loved Disneyland, and they kept coming back. See, we're not done yet. That wasn't some snazzy little PR, public relations, media response that they figured out to give to the media to try to patch things over. That wasn't some quick little cover-up they did. It wasn't some tricky way to make excuses for your mistakes. No, that was the honest truth. That was Walt Disney's philosophy. We're not done yet. As long as there's creativity, we're going to continue to go. And that is what Walt, that, that's the legacy that Walt Disney left. That's why Walt Disney Corporation, that's why Disneyland and Disney World are considered some of the most iconic companies in the entire world. That's why Walt Disney Entertainment Company is considered one of the largest entertainment companies in the world simply because Walt continued to go despite what all of his critics said. The critics were wrong. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. That's actually some really good advice. That's really good advice if you're struggling right now with discouragement. Maybe you're a little disillusioned. Maybe you're a little frustrated over the events that have happened in the last year. Maybe you're discouraged and you're trying to figure out the meaning of life. Maybe you have conflicts with other people in your life or in your family. Some of you might feel like those weeds that were growing in Disneyland where there's some random sign placed next to them to try to pretend there's something that they're really not. I think all of us are struggling to one degree or another in our life and it's important to hear the words, you're not done yet. See, that's not some random excuse that we give so we don't have to take responsibility for our mistakes or flaws. It's not a reason, that's not an excuse that we give so we don't have to deal with our sins or avoid addressing our sins. Instead of saying, you're not done yet, 
is a reminder to us to lean on God when our critics will look at us and say, that's a disaster. See, it's good to remind ourselves that we're not done yet. It might be a good idea to place placards in your house or in your car or somewhere just saying, we're not done yet. Maybe have Walt Disney's quote. Maybe you're not into having Walt Disney memorabilia in your house. I understand that, so maybe you would like to have Isaiah 46, verse 10, printed to remind you of your future. That prophetic verse says, Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I will plan will come to pass, for I will do whatever I wish. Those are the words of God to each one of us. Maybe you need a shorter verse. We'll then take the ESV translation that just takes that verse and condenses it down to, I will accomplish all of my purposes. Sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that's what God says to each of us each and every day. I will accomplish my purposes. See, when life is hard or it's difficult or you're struggling or you're frustrated, it's good to remind ourselves that God says, I will accomplish my purposes. Now, maybe God will not complete our plans exactly as I would like. Maybe I'm going to be a little discouraged along the route in my life because things aren't happening exactly how I want them to happen. But it's good for us to remember the words of Isaiah where God says, I know the future before it will happen. And it's a good reminder to remind us to submit to the one who knows the future before it even happens. I think that's what a lot of us have been learning over the last year, is we're not sure where things are going. I think all of us could sit down and recount the number of theories that we've heard over the last year of when this would be over. And it's not over yet. But fortunately, we do serve a God who says, I know how this is all going to end, and I will make sure that I accomplish the purposes in your life. I like how King David says God will complete his purposes. In Psalm 138, verse 8, David says, The Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. O Lord, your loving devotion endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says in Philippians 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Those are just comforting words in the Bible. Comforting words to remind us that God is not finished yet and that God will see to it that his purpose for our life is actually completed. Now our full completion will not happen until the day we enter heaven. But we know what's going to happen. We know God is in the process. So that's why we can look at our critics and say, be silent when they're trying to tell us that we're a disaster. That's why we can look at our critics and say God's not done yet because God has promised that he will continue to do a work in our lives and bring it to full completion. See, even in the midst of your pain or your struggle or your anxiety or your doubt or your confusion, it's good to remind ourselves that God is not done yet. That's why if you scroll through the Bible, you're going to see promise after promise of God reminding his people, I'm not done yet, and that I will lead you, and I will guide you, and I will direct you across, along your path to take you to where I have intended for you to go. But see, we all have that enemy, that enemy that likes to look at us and to remind us of things that are going wrong in our life. 
that wants to point out all the list of things that we've done wrong and constantly look at us and say, that's just a disaster. That's just a disaster. Because the enemy knows if he can discourage us enough, we are going to stop following Jesus. So God continues to encourage us each and every day. So you might look at me, you might say, Jack, if you really knew my life, if you really knew my circumstances right now, you would probably agree that it's a disaster. But let's be really honest. Sometimes even God's own plans look like a disaster. So even sometimes what God is doing actually look like, looks like a disaster. Can you imagine what Satan and his group of demons were doing after he, Satan got Adam and Eve to sin? I'm pretty certain that Satan stood back with his group of demons and they laughed. And they thought we were successful. They probably looked at God that day and they thought, you've been defeated. Your plan for a man and a woman, that turned out is pure disaster. Why? Because it looks like God was defeated that day. See, Satan and his demons, they probably laughed at God and thought his plan was a disaster because after all, Adam and Eve did sin. The demons probably thought that they outsmarted God. They outmaneuvered God. Satan thought he won that day, and let's be really honest, it kind of looks like he did. It looks like Satan did. It looks like he creeped into the garden and he got Adam and Eve to do what God didn't want them to do. But just like Walt Disney looked at his critics and said, I'm not done yet, God looked at Satan, and in Genesis 3, God said to him, I'm not done yet. He said, I have a plan. I have a son, and my son will crush your head, and my son will defeat the plans that you have. See, God says over and over again in the Bible, I'm not done yet. So why does Jesus come? Why Jesus? Why doesn't God just do it? Why does God have to have a son? See, last week we looked at that very familiar verse in the Bible of Genesis 1-1 that just says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's your one verse description of God. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now if you want a one verse description of Jesus, a really good one is John 1-1 that says, in the beginning the Word already existed and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That's your one verse description of who Jesus is. Jesus is the word of God and Jesus was with God from the very beginning. See, this introduces the whole concept of Trinity, that God is three persons in one, that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And some of you that may be listening today, maybe you're new to that concept. Maybe you're new to this idea of a trinity, that God is three persons in one. And so that's why we remind ourselves today that God is three persons with three purposes, but exist as one person. And today we're talking about that second person in the Trinity. We're talking about Jesus and why he came to earth. So why Jesus? I think we all know the backstory. many of you do, of Genesis 3, where Satan comes into the Garden of Eden and stands between Adam and Eve and says, you're missing out. He basically says to Adam and Eve, God has this whole, God is restricting you too much. You are missing out. So the serpent tricks Adam and Eve into sinning. And that sin leads to two major problems. The first problem is Satan is now on the loose. 
He's only getting started with bringing sin into the world, and, he's, and his goal is to continue to separate people from God. And the second problem that you have is that humankind now owes a big debt for their sins. See, there's a penalty that always has to be paid for sins. So now the human race finds themselves separated from God, and they owe a debt. So remember, we sinned against God. We broke God's rules. We rebelled against God. We all disobeyed God. And our debt is going to need to be paid back to God. That's why Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. See, there's a consequence to sin. And the consequence is that you have to die to pay for your sin. God simply cannot ignore our sin and say, Well, that was just a little mistake. We'll give him another try. God cannot ignore sin because God is faithful to his word. And God in his word says somebody is going to have to pay the consequence for that sin. And so that's why God introduces Jesus so Jesus can come forward and to pay the penalty for our sin. See, the bad news is that we have sinned against God, that we are separated against God unless somebody pays for your sin. That's why the rest of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. So let's go a little deeper. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? Or what does it mean that Jesus has to die for our sins? See, I think sometimes we forget the fact that Jesus actually came to save us from God. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God. When we talk about Jesus saving us from our sins, he, we mean that Jesus is saving us from the consequences of our sin, which was put in place by God. That's why in Matthew 10, verse 28 says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. See, God has every right to destroy a person or to make a person pay the penalty for their sins. Because we have offended God. And God, being a just God, needs justice. And because God's loving and kind, he comes up with a plan of escape. So we don't have to be separated from him for eternity. See, a lot of people will notice, they'll say, that, that, that's harsh of God. How can God be so mean that he would actually send people to hell? I get that. That sounds kind of cruel that a person would go to hell. None of us want to see a person go to hell. And see, God doesn't either. God doesn't want everybody to end up in hell. That's why he brings Jesus. So you don't have to go to hell. That's the compassion and the kindness and the love of God. Where on the one hand, God is the God of justice. He has to obey his word. And on the other hand, God comes up with a plan of kindness and love and compassion so people can avoid the consequences of their sin. So God, before Jesus came, God had this whole elaborate plan for forgiveness of sins. We call it the Mosaic Law. We call it the Old Testament Law. You remember reading in the Old Testament, it's all about the system of sacrifices that people had to go through in order to be atoned for their sins. Now, salvation from the beginning, from Genesis, was always by grace. It was always through faith in God. But in the Old Testament, how were you going to be forgiven of your sins? You couldn't go to Jesus and repent for your sins, so you had to make animal sacrifices. That's why all through the Old Testament we see a whole, a whole system, a whole structure that was set up that a person could repent for their sins and they would have to sacrifice an animal to pay the penalty for their sins. 
The Old Testament was set up to show to us that somebody or something is going to have to die. Something's going to have to shed its blood so we can be forgiven of our sins. So you see this whole Old Testament structure of sacrifices for sin. So what happened with that plan? Why did we stop that Old Testament structure? Why don't we continue it on? Why don't we still have the plan today where you sinned uh, annually, you have to sacrifice some animals. You did something wrong, you sacrificed animals. Why don't we do that anymore? Why did we stop that? See, in Matthew 21, verse 12, we're going to start to learn why we stopped that. Earlier in my message today, I read Jesus coming into the city on Palm Sunday, and after he's into Jerusalem, then we come to verse 12, and it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. That's one of those confusing sets of scriptures in the Bible that people wonder what really happened. We have a hard time imagining that Jesus got that angry or that frustrated and went into the temple and started flipping tables. I think it's a hard time imagining that Jesus would actually do that. We usually see Jesus as calm and full of compassion. We have a hard time seeing him throw over tables. I'm going to tell you what I think happened that day. This is just my opinion. This is conjecture based on what I'm looking at the evidence, what I'm reading, but also reading different commentaries. This is what I think happened that day. This was Passover week. The city's filling up with people. There's probably 200,000, 300,000 people are all coming in Jerusalem for Passover. There's a big commotion. Everything's happening at the temple. This is the holiest week of the year. All of the Israelites, all the Hebrew people are coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to go to that temple today. He's going to that temple. And outside of the temple is a gate around the temple. And when Jesus goes there, I think he's noticing, this is my conjecture, I think what he's noticing is that outside the temple gates, there's a lot of poor people. There's a lot of people with disabilities. There's blind people. There's people that can't walk. There's orphans. There's children. There's the poorest of the poor. And they're all outside of the temple. And they're not coming into the city. And what I think happened is I think Jesus walked by this growing number of people outside of the city. And he starts to wonder, why are they all there? See, three times in the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw widows or orphans or sick people or people without a shepherd. So we know that any time that Jesus would see a person that's marginalized or oppressed, that he would be moved with compassion for these people. And I think what happened that day, I think Jesus saw that group of people and I think he thought, how come they're not in the temple? These people need to get inside church. How come they're not inside? Why are they all outside? So because Jesus is so compassionate, I think he starts going into the temple and starts to figure out what is blocking these people from coming into church. 
And what does he see? Jesus sees this corrupt system where Jesus says, look, my house is supposed to be called a house of prayer. Now it's turned into a den of robbers. Jesus looks at what's happening in the temple and he calls it corruption. See, once again, God's plans could easily look like a failure. You could easily look at what's happening in the temple and say, well, that was a bad plan that God came up with because it's obviously a disaster. Because in Jesus' own words, what God had intended for a house of prayer is turning into a place of robbers and thieves. But see, sometimes what looks like a disaster is just a setup for something even better. So you could easily look at God's plan for the sacrifices and said, well, that didn't work out very well. But it was actually a setup for people to realize that they needed a Savior. That they needed somebody to come and pay their debts for them. See, the Israelites all realized that this, this system of having to go to the temple, that would never end. You're constantly having to sacrifice something over and over and over again. And they realized that there was never any real forgiveness of sin because you're constantly sacrificing something else. But see, that law and the system of sacrifices, that was only meant to be a temporary solution. That was never designed to be the permanent solution. Instead, what that system was designed to do was to bring revelation and insight to people to know that they needed a Savior. And see, that's why in Galatians 2, verse 24, Paul says it this way. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. See, Paul's looking at that situation saying, that was only a temporary situation, the law and the sacrifice, until you had Jesus would come. See, sometimes our struggles are just temporary plans. See, the Old Testament wasn't a disaster. It was to show people that they needed grace and mercy. And it was to show people the best way to have grace and mercy is in a personal relationship with God. But in order for that to happen, Jesus is going to have to remove whatever would block a person from having access to him. So Jesus enters the temple looking for corruption. And there's two specific things that are happening in the temple that draw Jesus' attention. Number one, it's the money changers. And number two, it's the people selling pigeons. Why did Jesus lock in on those two things? Why did money changers and pigeon sales bother him so much that he would actually flip the tables where the people are sitting at? So remember, it's Passover week. Everybody's in town. Everybody's going to be making their sacrifices for their family for the sins of the past year. So sale of animals was essential in the temple. In these outer courts of the temples, you could buy an animal to sacrifice. Because maybe you made a hundred or two mile, hundred trek into Jerusalem and you knew you're going to have to offer some sacrifice for your family's sins. Well, it might be hard for you to transport whatever animal that you needed. So instead of bringing an animal from home, you would come to the temple, then you would buy an animal. You'd maybe buy your goat or you'd buy your dove or you'd buy whatever animal that needs to be sacrificed for you and the sins of your family. So it was expected that in the outer courts that you would be selling animals. That was not the problem. But see, also there were money changers. See, money changers were necessary in that day because the only currency that could be used inside of the temple was a shekel. 
that was the only currency allowed. So maybe you came some, from some other part of the Roman Empire or maybe some other country and you had your own local currency. You would have to come into the temple and exchange your money so you could use the Tyrian, Tyrian shekel. And that money that you'd use, that shekel you could use to buy an animal or to pay your annual temple tax. So that's what's going on in the temple. So why is Jesus upset with those animal sellers? Because they're taking advantage of people. See, the sale of pigeons was reserved for the poorest of the poor. In the book of Leviticus, it says if a person cannot afford another animal, they could use a pigeon. That was the cheapest, most inexpensive animal that you could use for a sacrifice. And the pigeon sellers and the tax collectors were charging such an enormous rate, an exchange rate, that the poor people and the marginalized could not afford it. That's why they're outside the temple. Because they can't afford it. The people who needed access an entrance into the temple or into the church the most were not allowed in because the people inside of the church said we're better off without them and we're going to charge an exorbitant rate that they cannot come in. That's why Jesus was upset. He was upset. Not because of trading or selling. Jesus was upset, upset because of the extortion. Jesus was upset because people in the temple were taking advantage of the most vulnerable and not allowing them access to what they needed, which was forgiveness of sins which was restoration, which was wholeness. See, some of those people inside the temple, they decided we didn't need those people. We can live without them. The oppressed were just oppressed more. And those who had no money could not come. God was too expensive for them. That's why in Isaiah 55, this isn't in your notes, Isaiah 55, verse 1. It's a prophetic declaration of what Jesus would do. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, this is what Jesus was going to do. He was going to make a relationship with God accessible to any person. You would not be limited because of your money. You would not be denied access to God because of your circumstance or your status. 
Nothing was going to block a person from God because Jesus was destroying that plan of extortion that was happening in the temple. See, corruption has to leave the temple in order for people to get into the temple. Jesus always removes oppression so people have access to what they need. And see, God calls for his church to be accessible to all people. God calls us at a church to make sure we have room for all. See, because what does verse 14 say? Verse 14 says that after Jesus kicked out the money changers, it said, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. That word and could be substituted for the word then. Once Jesus cleared out the money changers, then the blind and the lame came to the temple and he healed them. Then the blind came to the temple and he healed them. That's what Jesus does. He removes corruption so people have access to what they need. And that's what God's calling is for us as a church to remove any oppression that would prohibit a person from coming into the church. And so it brings up good questions for us. It brings up a good question for us. Where are we biased on who can come to Jesus and who can't come to Jesus? Where have we made it difficult for a person to have a relationship with God? Where have we allowed oppression in our hearts or in our minds? Or where have we done what was common back in Jesus' days as it is common today? Where have we looked at people and said, well, you created that problem yourself. You better figure out how to get out of that problem and then you can come to church. See, sometimes we make church expensive for people. Maybe not expensive in the sense of you got to pay money, but in the sense of behaviorally. We say to people sometimes, if you want to belong to our church, you better believe first and then behave. That wasn't Jesus' plan, that in order to belong, you had to believe and behave. Jesus said to the people, you can belong. And as you belong... It influences your belief, and then your belief will influence your behavior. That's how Jesus treated people. Jesus didn't ignore sin. He didn't wink at sin. But Jesus destroyed the oppression that blocked people from having a relationship with God that would ultimately transform their life. See, the temple... The temple was a one place that was supposed to be different. It was the one place where the marginalized and the oppressed were supposed to come to to find the freedom and the wholeness and the healing they needed. But corruption blocked it.
the temple became a place of chaos and corruption. But when the barrier was gone, then there was room for the people inside. And I think we as a church and people part of a church and leaders of a church, we have to make sure that any barriers are removed that might prevent a person from receiving what they need to receive from God. See, today is the fourth anniversary of Lake Effect Church. It's kind of a weird anniversary because in one way you want to have a celebration, but we're scattered all through the city online and there's a handful of people here today and it's hard to really have a celebration because you can't serve food and we're limited right now. There's so many limitations that we are experiencing right now. And to be honest with you, I even wondered through the year, would we make it to our fourth, fourth birthday? Would we be celebrating this day today? Because you look through the year and you wonder what is going to happen. I mean, as you know, the last year has been tricky for us. We, a year ago, we were meeting at Grand Valley, and that closed, and we were out of a location for a while, and we met online, and that worked well. And God provides us this facility that we can rent, and things are going well until this congregation, for their, for their good reasons, decided let's suspend in-person church services. So once again, we're not meeting and it's been a tough year for us as a church, a church that does not have a physical location to meet and to survive. And as some of you have seen throughout the year, some people have left Lake Effect Church. Some people have left and they have done a good job. And I've met with these families and it was a good decision. I believe that God called them to go to a different church. And so that, that's good and understanding that. But some people have left Lake Effect Church too because, well, they, I don't know why. Some people I've not been in touch with. They don't respond to phone calls or emails or, or text messages, and some people are just gone. And so we were a small church <laughs> a year ago, and now we're even a smaller church now. And I think sometimes I've wondered, and we struggled, even the leadership we've talked about, are, how, how are we surviving? It's easy when it looks like you look like it doesn't look like it's going well to kind of wonder what is your future. And as a leadership, we've been praying and we've been looking at our church situation and wondering what is God saying to us. But the thing that God's been doing is he continues to provide for all of our needs. He continues to provide for our, our money to pay rent in this facility, to pay for salaries, to pay for sound equipment, to pay our expenses, to support Andrew Miller and his wife Carly, to continue to tithe our income that we make each month. We're doing well. So it's been an interesting year. On the one hand, we become strong, we become smaller, but at the same time, we have grown stronger in many other ways where we've seen the provision of God. So as a church, as we enter into this fifth year, even though in some ways it seems like we are back down to where we were when we started four years ago with a handful of people, we go into this fifth year with just a renewed commitment that God's not done yet. Sometimes it looks like maybe he's done, but God's not done yet. And so as we move into this year, I think we take as a leadership 
any core people that are part of Lake Effect, I think we take serious our purpose and our mission, and that is that we are a people that are devoted to Christ and his message to the world. As long as we continue to be people that are devoted to Christ and his message to the world, we will be successful. What that looks like, I don't know. But God continues to call us to be devoted to him and to his message. But I also think that this Matthew 21, the verses I read, is kind of a prophetic word to our church this year. Because it does make us say, it makes us answer the question, what are you doing to make sure nobody's left outside of the church? I think that's part of how we enter into this next year is saying, what are we doing to make sure nobody's left out? What are we doing to make sure that everybody has access to come to church? Soon these COVID restrictions will be over. Hopefully. Eventually. Soon we will be able to meet again as a church to invite people, to invite the neighborhood. That day is coming. I wish it was tomorrow. I wish we could do that. I wish we could go back and advertise all the neighbors we can come next Sunday, but we'd get in trouble if we did that. That day's coming. We're not there yet. But I think as we are preparing for that day, it is good for us to continue to submit and surrender to God that we are a people devoted to Christ and his message to the world, but also let God work in our heart and our lives to make sure we are never the barrier that would prevent a person from coming to church or from coming to know God who he is. Because I think outside of churches, I think sometimes outside of churches are the people that need it the most. Well, that's kind of obvious. But outside of churches is where those marginalized and the tax collectors and the widows and the orphans and the prostitutes and those that don't have a place in society, they're outside of the church. And we need to follow the example of Jesus and see to it that those people have access to come into church. That we have to follow in the steps of Jesus to make sure that we are doing what we can do to see the oppression stopped so church is available to everybody. So as we go into our fifth year, we go with, I go in with just a new confidence and a new resolve, a new eagerness, a new expectation. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. But fortunately, all I have to know is God will accomplish his purposes for each of us. That's all we have to do. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know what it's going to look like. Except I know that God is faithful. And that God will get us all to where we're going. And next year, we're going to have a really good party. We'll have a fun party next year as we celebrate our fifth anniversary. 
So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for joining us. For you that are home, we're going to have one more song at the end. But let me just pray for us as we uh, wrap it up. God, I thank you for today, and I thank you, Lord, for this message. God, I thank you that you sent Jesus to this world, Lord, to remove any oppression that would prohibit us from receiving the hope and the healing and the restoration that we need. God, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, that despite the fact that the wages of sin is death, that, Lord, you created a plan of escape for us, and we say thank you for that. God, I pray for anybody listening to me today, Lord, that may need, that doesn't totally understand that that maybe hasn't realized or hasn't submitted their life to you. I pray, Lord, that you'd work in the heart and that life of that person and to make the gospel clear to them. God, we thank you for your faithfulness that you have been with us the last four years, and I thank you that you'll continue to go before us in the next four years. Lord, we thank you that you are the God that knows what's going to happen in the future and that you are the God who finishes what you began. And we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.